0: This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.
1: like to come from a place of hope and optimism and positivity. If you spend your life worrying about not losing or the the fear of losing, you're not going to take the risk. You're not going to go for the big thing.
0: From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. Today, I'm joined by Julie Legal, CMO of Slack. Prior to joining Slack, Julie spent 10 years at Salesforce. She made her mark by transforming a small user conference into the tech mega event known as Dreamforce. I'm looking forward to getting into the story behind the phenomenon that literally shuts down San Francisco for a week. We'll also get Julie's take on how a CMO can build great partnerships with the CEO, and she'll share her experience in working with two of the most innovative leaders in the Valley, Stuart Butterfield and Mark Benioff. Julie, it's great to have you on the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here.
0: We're going to get into a lot of great detail about your career, what shaped your marketing philosophy. First of all, I needed to call out the fact that the most exclusive ticket in town right now is a little soiree that you put on on a (laughs) weekly basis. The invite list is virtually impossible to get on. Limited seating. Tell us a little bit about what you've got going on. More importantly, how can I get a ticket to this thing?
1: <laughs> well, I think we need uh, Gavin Newsom uh, to relax the social distancing rules. But um, yes, about two weeks into uh, staying at home and, and being socially distanced, uh, I started hosting fancy dinner parties every Saturday night for just, you know, the adults in my own household. I love to cook. I love to entertain. And uh, the first week it was just like, you know, it's, we're stuck at home. Let's dress up and have a fancy meal. And it was so fun. And uh, I had a great bottle of champagne and I put on, you know, makeup for the first time in a few weeks. And uh, we decided let's keep going. So we now do a theme every Saturday night. We dress up. Um, we've done Southern, we've done Hawaiian, we've done Momofuku night. Um, and I spend kind of the whole week planning and shopping for the food. I cook a lot of Saturday and we sit down and have a really fabulous meal, just us. Um, and I would love to be able to host people, but unfortunately, until we get COVID under control, it's, it's just going to be a party of, of my house. Um, okay. and we do do this after the kids go to bed. So it's even exclusive within my house.
0: Well, the, the next time a seat opens up, definitely put me on the list. I want to check this thing out. You are clearly a foodie.
1: Maybe I need to get some people out of my porch and I can just pass <laughs> them the food with the with a mask on.
0: That would work. You could get a little outdoor seating area going. We could do uh we could do a nice little neighborhood gathering. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're clearly a foodie. How far does this go back? This love affair that you have with food?
1: Oh, um, it goes, it goes a ways back. Um, I've always been a very motivated eater and, uh, my parents living in LA in the, you know, seventies, eighties discovered sushi very early. So I was taken to the sushi bar. They got sick of hiring a sitter very young. And I, I joke that I, I developed a taste for fried shrimp heads before hot dogs. So I've always been pretty adventurous, always really loved food. I grew up with a mom who loved to cook and we cook together. And um it's just sort of gone from there, I guess. And I will say, as I've said to you yesterday, that um, being able to cook more is sort of the one unexpected, you know, quote unquote, upside of, of being at home and, and quarantining is I get to be in my kitchen a lot more. And, and that has been a great stress reliever for me.
0: I love to talk to people about the silver lining they're finding in COVID. This is one of the most popular themes, though, people discovering new talents and new hobbies and really developing them and sharing them with other people, whether it's friends or family. You've got a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. Do they share your passion for food?
1: they're the worst. It's so awful. (laughs) The most stressful part of Saturday night dinner is I'm generally like prepping, even they eat earlier than we do. Obviously we put them to bed before we eat. So I'll be in like mid prepping, you know, doing something intense. And then I have to make one meal for the picky uh, eight-year-old and a different meal for the even pickier five-year-old who literally only eats mac and cheese made night of, no reheating leftovers. I've discovered the trick to make it look like I'm making it fresh when I'm reheating leftovers. So they are terrible. I see some glimmers of hope with the older one. She's developed a taste for salmon roe at the sushi bar. So that's, you know, maybe she'll grow into it. Um, but my husband has has let me know that he was a very picky eater as a child. He's now a great eater. So I'm hoping that they'll outgrow it, but it's going to be a while.
0: I find that peer pressure does so much to open up kids' food horizons. My youngest son, we raised him on hot dog buns and spinach. My wife did a deal with him and said, you can eat all the hot dog buns you'd like to eat, but you have to eat raw spinach. And he turned out just fine, I think. So I mean,
1: that's the amazing thing. They keep growing. No one has scurvy in my house. It's sort of shocking given what they eat. But the funniest, you know, I've been cooking so much, I have leftovers, and I'm making like, you know, interesting food, and and my five year old actually demands that I eat outside or in a different room because she doesn't even like to be around the smell of my leftovers. So it's it's she's pretty dug in on her pickiness. I, I hope she outgrows it.
0: We'll check in in ten years and and see how that's going. Exactly, I'm, we'll I'm sure we're, we're
1: all still sane and speaking <laughs> to each other.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about your past. You grew up in Southern California. Tell me about some of the things that you liked to do when you were a kid.
1: Wow. What did I like to do when I was a kid? Um, I was a huge reader. Um, I was book obsessed from very, very young and one of my favorite periods of my life, we we moved around a bit all within Southern California, kind of bouncing up and down the 405 freeway, was there was a period of time when we lived in LA where um, we could walk to kind of the little downtown area of the town that we were living in. And my dad and I would walk or bike to the library every Saturday um, and then we'd go to the deli and, and pick up a bagel. And I'd come home and I would just spread out the books and I would sit inside and read for the rest of the weekend. And I know my parents were always trying to get me outside more. I mean, at least I was doing that great walking. Um, but I really was just always immersed in books. Um, and then my other real passion was really theater. I did a lot of theater. I think I was a really overdramatic child and my parents didn't really know what to do with it, um, but they knew they didn't want it in the house. So at age five, they kind of started putting me into little theater groups. And I did that all the way growing up through high school and even a little bit in college. And uh, it was sort of my, my great outlet.
0: So you're in Southern California, passionate about theater. Was a career in acting ever part of the game plan?
1: You know, it's so weird to say this, and it makes me sound like such a cynical child, but no. I think because I grew up around show business and I kind of saw it from, you know, a little bit of a closer angle than a lot of people did, I think by the age of eight, I was like, well, I'm never going to do that. That's it's too hard. It's too impossible. It's a, you know, it's a really hard industry. And I, I knew I was good at other things too. So I loved theater, but I always saw it as a hobby. Um, And it's funny, I almost wonder if I'd grown up somewhere else, if I would have been a little bit more naive, maybe I would have tried it, who knows. Um, But yeah, I never really considered it as something I would do. In fact, every time I got to keep doing it, I was like, oh, wow, I'm in high school and very academically focused and doing these other things. But I still get to do theater. It was always sort of something I still got to do. um, And that brought me a lot of joy.
0: That theme, though, of loving stories, going to the library, being in theater, I think comes through in the work that we do as marketers. So much of our job is about telling stories and telling them in a compelling way. It's interesting, I was the same way as a kid. I love to go to the library. The irony in my life is I struggled with dyslexia. I love stories, wow. but it took me forever <laughs> to read them. And to this day, I have a love for children's stories. One, because they have very small words and much far fewer words than the novels. But two, I think that they do a wonderful job of boiling a story down to the essence that a child can understand, but a great story still an adult can understand as well.
1: Absolutely. And it's it's funny. I had to go through, um, I had to, I got to go through this really great leadership training a couple of years ago. And one of the things I had to do was interview people in my life to kind of get them to describe me, to kind of come up with attributes. And my brother, who he has known me pretty much as long as anyone, um, the first word he used with me is storytelling. He's like, you've always been a passionate storyteller, like the theater, the books. I did write stories when I was a kid, but I also am the one in our family who tells all the stories and I I attach a lot of meaning to them. So I absolutely think that's true. I think marketing is storytelling and a lot of people who find their path in marketing are at their heart, very passionate
0: storytellers. Now, I have heard that as a child, you were actually a child prodigy when it came to writing jingles. Oh. (laughs) I would love to hear... I'm putting you on the spot here, Julie, but do you have a jingle... Do you have a jingle that you wrote as a child that you could share with us today?
1: I, you know, it would require singing, unfortunately, but I remember as a kid, there was this series of McDonald's ads that was done to a particular tune. I also did, it's funny, I never listened as a hobby. I played piano for a lot of years. I just never really loved it, but I played for over 10 years. So I had a good ear for music, I guess. And, um, there was a McDonald's jingle. I'm not even going to sing the melody because I'm such a terrible singer. Um, but they, they it's like, it ended with, it's a good time for a great taste of McDonald's or something like that. Anyway, I wrote one in my head about like traveling and it ended with, um, I'd like to travel anywhere as long as there is a McDonald's there. It's a good time for the great taste of McDonald's. Um, and it was like all this stuff about going to all these different places, but there always being a McDonald's there, which is sad but true there always is a mcdonald's there um so yeah it's it's funny as again as you know eight-year-old nine-year-old however i was uh when i did that it you know wasn't like and that's what i want to do i I don't think it occurred to me that's what i wanted to do but maybe that was my first foray into marketing i just didn't know it
0: it was there though the seeds were there they were starting to germinate they would they would come to full full fruition later in your life
1: mcdonald's call me you know (laughs) i'm i'm ready
0: Growing up in Southern California, tell me about the L.A. Dodgers and the role that the Dodgers played in your life.
1: Yeah, I like to joke that um, in my house, growing up with uh, interfaith parents, that uh, the Dodgers replaced religion. And um, I grew up with very passionate Dodger fan parents uh, from a very young age, taken to Dodger Stadium. The voice of Vin Scully is the voice of my childhood. And, um, I, I absolutely love them. I was at game one of the eight eight world series when Kirk Gibson hit the walk off home run. Um, I've been to both the world series that the Dodgers have been in since. I've actually been to both of the Dodgers walk off home runs, um, that have happened in the world series in my lifetime. Um, I've actually tweeted at the Dodgers that they've never lost a world series game I've gone to. So if they're lucky enough to make it in again, I think they should just really bring me to all of the games. Um, but I love the Dodgers and you know, talk about storytelling, I just, I also feel like that's a way that my parents and I talk, remember when this player, that time, that game we went to. Um, it's something that we all really love and we love to talk about. And, you know, I joke, we are the biggest sports fans. We are a deeply unathletic family. We, you know, none of us really played team sports in any real way. I think my mom did a little bit in high school, but the rest of us, definitely not the jock set. Um, but we love watching sports together. We love talking about sports together and love a lot of teams. Also grew up with the Lakers, big college football fans, but really the Dodgers were were kind of the, the center of it all. And I'm very excited baseball's back, although a little worried and terrified about how they're going to get through this mini season with everything that's going on with COVID.
0: You brought up Vince Scully. That guy is a legend. Started with the Dodgers back in 1950 and had, I think the second longest run uh, except for Tommy with the, with the Dodgers. And he is a fountain of quotes and definitely a professor of the game. Let me read one quote and I'd love to get your reaction to this. He once said losing feels worse then winning feels good. Losing feels worse than winning feels good. My question for you, what drives you more, winning or not losing?
1: Ooh, winning. Um, I think winning drives me more because I like to come from a place of hope and optimism and positivity and belief that we can get to the big thing. And I worry if you um, spend your life worrying about not losing or the, the fear of losing, that you're not going to take the risk. You're not going to, you're not going to go for the big thing. Um, So I hope, and I hope I can keep myself accountable that I err on the side of going for the win.
0: It's a fascinating question because, and there's no right or wrong answer to it. I've talked to people who actually say what drives me is not losing, but that desire to not lose actually inspires and motivates them to work harder yeah on the flip side as you're saying some people are all about the win and see failure as part of the win i think the the real answer is you've got to understand yourself and what inherently motivates you and moves you forward
1: Exactly. And I guess the way I interpret it is if you're worried about the loss, you're not going to take the risk. And I think risks are important. You have to do bold things in your career, in your life. Um, otherwise, you're kind of being held back by the fear of, of failure, of loss. And, and that's a big thing that I think we all struggle with. Um, but I hope and I would like to think that I'm somebody who wants to go for the win.
0: So you grow up in Southern California. You take the big trip up to Northern California to go to Stanford. I was the opposite. So grew up in the Bay Area and went to school in L.A. Culture shock, I'm sure. And you, not surprisingly, land in an English major. How did you get from English major at Stanford into the world of marketing?
1: Well, I knew pretty Right well so first of all I became an English major cuz I just kept reading books and it was funny I I don't think the first year I thought about it I was like wow I can I can take these classes and all I have to do is read books and talk about them like that's it's what I like to do anyway. And suddenly I was halfway through an English major. Um, but I knew I didn't want to become a teacher. I didn't, you know, I was like publishing. Nah, I wasn't really interested in that. So I did spend a lot of time and I spent all my summers trying to figure out what I did want to do. And um, I was lucky enough uh, through a career counselor at school to get uh, connected with a mentor and the alumni network um, and started to learn about marketing. And what appealed to me was um, I had this side, you know, English major, storytelling, creativity. Like I definitely had that part of me that I wanted to be able to harness. But I also, on the flip side, have always really loved numbers, math, being quantitative. And marketing, as it was described to me, and I sort of looked at the jobs and understood what people did, felt like it was a really strong balance of both. And I I thought this could be something that I could be good at. This could be something that was a good skill, you know, fit for my skill sets and my passions. And then I just happened to be lucky enough, you know, late, mid late 90s. Um, tech, you know, tech boom 1.0 happened to be happening. And, you know, people who were hiring marketers straight out of college were sort of these scrappy tech companies who weren't worried about the MBA pedigree that maybe the old traditional um, consumer goods companies were looking for and happened to get connected through another friend. You know, I feel like life is you can tell your story of it was that you did everything right. Or you can tell your story of you were unbelievably lucky. I know I was unbelievably lucky. I have a friend who I still know to this day who met somebody who was recruiting uh, for this company who was just a couple of years ahead of us from Stanford, and she was also a liberal arts major. And he said, you two seem really similar. And um, even if you don't want to go work there and do marketing at this company, I think you should meet her because I think you just you would really click and you'd get along. And I met her, and then I interviewed with her, and then I interviewed with the company. And next thing you know, I'm moving to Austin, Texas to do marketing for a company called Trilogy, and it sort of changed my life forever
0: actually share something back in 2002, we both had the opportunity to work for this little tiny up and coming company. No one had heard of it until they took out a front page ad on USA Today. The company, of course, was Salesforce. You made the right choice and ended up joining Salesforce. I, who was at Siebel, felt like Siebel was the unassailable CRM company that would never be taken down. So I turned my back on Salesforce and hitched my wagon to Siebel. I've had a great run since then, but obviously missed the boat big time from a Salesforce perspective. What was it like, though, to be at Salesforce back in 2002?
1: Well, first of all, talk about luck. I answered a Craigslist ad for a temporary contracting marketing job because I'd been through the dot-com bust, and I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I was like, this will tide me over for a few months. And of course, it ended up completely changing my career. And Over a decade of my life. Um, What was it like? Um, My first month, I shared my desk with a printer for the area of the floor that I sat on. And people would actually put print jobs on my keyboard if I wasn't there, you know, when they went through to find theirs. Uh, The marketing team is tiny so we were kind of doing a little bit of everything um i was brought in they were trying to get an event series off the ground but they had also just launched their first you know step into really a marketing product which was the campaigns object so i had to help figure out how we were going to use it to manage our marketing within the company so it was it was such a great opportunity because you really got to come in and kind of do whatever you know you're brought in to do one thing but there was nothing but opportunity um it was growing really fast it was really smart people Um, But it was not like I went in saying, this is, you know, I'm going to go in and this company is going to go. I mean, I joke, if I could have a time machine and go back and tell, you know, 2002, Julie, what Salesforce would be like today, I wouldn't have believed it. Like, it certainly seemed like a great place with really smart people. And the technology was so interesting, but it was such a radical idea and such a strange time in the economy. I don't think any of us could have predicted where it was going to go.
0: every company has its origin story. I was actually listening to the radio yesterday with all of the hearings that are going on now in Washington, and they did flashbacks to the first time that Google was mentioned on the radio, the first time that Facebook was mentioned on the radio, and they were described as these crazy upstarts. You look back, and obviously today they're just an integral part of our life, but to your point, it all starts with a a seat of a company it ends up growing. You can't predict it. But if you're fortunate enough to be a part of the the journey, it's an amazing story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I feel so fortunate. Um, and you know, ended up being there, you know, took a little break in the middle, but ended up being there on and off for 13 years and um feel really privileged to have seen it through so many phases of growth and have worked with so many amazing people there. It was it was a really special place. It is a really special place, it still is.
0: Well, you've had an interesting progression in your career. You took time out to go to business school. You came back though to Clorox rather than going directly into tech. I'd love your perspective on what tech marketers can learn from CPG companies like Clorox.
1: I did that, by the way, because I thought that that's really what I I said. I've been doing this tech marketing my whole career, but I think what I really want to do is traditional old school marketing. And I'm so glad I did it um and came to realize why i love tech and that i'd grown up in tech and that's really where i belonged but um you know what these traditional companies do so well is just the the methodology and the planning and the frameworks You know, if you think about it, these companies, you know, they have to produce a product. They invest so much in advertising. They really have to get everything right before they go. And so the strategic work they do, the research they do, the insights they do, it's unbelievable. And I think you learn so much about planning and strategy from that. You know, a tech company, especially a B2B tech company, you get the chance to launch, iterate, launch, iterate, launch, iterate. So you're doing a lot more like try something and then use the data to inform the next thing that you do. Um, So I think I learned a lot from kind of doing it the opposite way, which is spend a lot of time planning, using the data, building the strategy, and then launch the thing because you have to, you know, print a label on a million packages of a product or you have to shoot an ad that's going to run in so many different markets for such a long period of time. So I think I learned a lot about that. Um, And I think I also learned that I really preferred the tech model more. I I realized that there were things that were more important to me than working on a product that everybody knew about, which as a marketer was like, well, that seems more exciting. Um, Everybody knows my product. I realized what I really loved was the pace, the innovation, um, the sort of scrappiness in tech. Like it's definitely a slower pace, just naturally. Like it's a different phase of growth at these traditional CPG companies. So I learned a lot about what was important to me um for what i where I wanted to work,
0: when I was in B school, I remember interviewing at Procter and Gamble. What surprised me before I even got to talk to anyone, they made me take a math test. Wow, and then from there, you get in and they really exercise the creative side of your brain. It was a rigorous process. I gained tremendous respect for the way that they brought together the hardcore analytics that you're describing with the creative ideas, but the two were always connected, and so, if you look at a company like p and G or a company like Clorox, what makes them great is the rigor that they apply to the ideas that they ultimately roll out.
1: Absolutely. And what I also liked, and I think really learned that I think is is very relevant for all marketers today is you know, marketer, it 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 a company like Clorox at a company like Procter and Gable, you're you're more than a marketer. You're a brand manager. And that means like you're looking at the business. It's not like, well, I'm gonna build the marketing and throw it out there and you know, I'll know if my ad did well or my direct mail did well or anything like that. You're looking at the business. Like, what is the overall? Like I was the one who had to stand up and say how the glad food storage business was doing. That was one of the products I was on um, every given month and talk about the trends we were seeing and whether it was a distribution issue or a sales issue i talked about it all so it really reminds you that you know you can't really just sit in your little silo you really need to understand what's going on in the business and be able to figure out how you can plug in your skills your resources to help with really any part of it to make your your brand
0: or your business grow so you have a good run at clorox ultimately though the magnetism of salesforce pulls you back and you had a you had a great run at salesforce actually one of the positions that you held Was the Dreamforce conference chair. People know Dreamforce now. Even my mother knows about Dreamforce and she doesn't, (laughs) she doesn't know. I don't even think she knows about Salesforce, but she knows about Dreamforce.
1: See, I ended up with a product (laughs) everyone knew after all. (laughs) Nice
0: job. Tell me a little bit about what Dreamforce was like during your first stay at Salesforce and then under your watch, what it became.
1: Well, I was lucky enough, um, I worked on the first two dream forces before I left Salesforce the first time to go to business school. And, you know, the first one, it was sort of an idea and, um, you know, we'd been doing events all over the country, some internationally as well, but the idea of people flying to San Francisco for this crazy upstart company to, you know, spend money and buy a ticket and be with us for three days, it, it seemed not improbable, but it was, you know, a little bit of a, uh, us reaching out there. Um, and and they came. We had over a thousand people come to the first Dreamforce. We were in the Weston St. Francis, which is now like one of 13 hotels that Dreamforce totally takes over before it completely sells out five minutes before they open registration. So, you know, certainly the size was really different. But I, I do often tell this story. The first Dreamforce, you know, we'd worked on it very small team, probably only worked on it for like four or five months as opposed to now where it's like a year out, they're planning two years out, all that good stuff. Um, But we had worked on it a ton. I mean, we were late nights, a lot of Mountain Dew. And um, I remember it was the weekend before, it was the Friday before, I think it was starting on a Tuesday, the Friday before, and our CEO came down me and, and my boss at the time who was leading the entire events team, I think we were the entire events team, and uh and said, you know, I've been looking at the stuff you sent me on Dreamforce and uh, it looks great. But um, you know, that we had a partner area, we had breakout sessions, we had keynotes, you know, everything. Check, check, check. And he said, uh, where's the winter? And and we said, What? And he said, Well, you know, our we're announcing our winter release. It's our first ever seasonal release, and we're theming it winter. Where's the winter theme? So we spent that weekend, I mean, again, jingle writing. I wrote Christmas carols about CRM. I bought every red scarf. And by the way, it's September. It's hard to find red scarves. I bought every red scarf within 50 miles of San Francisco. I found snow globes. You could put pictures in and put our logos in them. We hired carolers. We made it snow in the keynote room. We had a Santa. We had a hot chocolate. So it was funny. We had this tech conference that was very by the book. And at the last minute... Through the great instincts of you know CEO, we we did this thing that was very unexpected and very like could have been a little weird, and the people who came loved it. They just, I mean, it was like they were like, "This is great." And if you think about it, the people who came to Dreamforce and. 2003, they were kind of making a bet. They were like this, you know, we weren't even calling it cloud th- then, you know, this idea of software as a service, like I'm, you know, I'm staking my career, I'm staking my my company's success on doing this thing that's totally different. And so they were kind of our first, their first, you know, kind of super fans and they came and we did this thing that was so fun and unexpected and they had a great time. And when I look at Dreamforce now, it's obviously changed so much in the size and the scale and the scope. But I do think from the very beginning, this idea of being different, unexpected, fun, human, like was sort of built in and it's just only grown from there.
0: Let's talk about Benioff for a minute. He is a legend in tech. And I, I, my favorite Benioff moment, again, going back to my days at Siebel, I remember opening up USA Today. There was a front page ad. and This is when Salesforce was maybe $10 million in revenue and Siebel was approaching like a billion. And the front page ad had a little boy at a chalkboard saying, I will not let steal, Siebel steal my lunch money anymore. Talk about punching a, above your weight class and that's just one of many crazy ideas that Benioff hatched that turned out to be brilliant. Do you have any other experiences with Mark where he hatched these ideas that at first seemed ludicrous but actually ended up being strokes of genius?
1: Probably too many to 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 count and I'll I'll try to think of a good one but what I will say is, you know, he he is a brilliant marketer and, you know, he didn't come up necessarily through marketing, but he's a brilliant marketer. So to have worked in marketing at Salesforce, first of all, it's great because marketing really has a seat at the table and is, is so central to the way that he sees and operates the company. But he has these ideas and, and you know, yes, sometimes they sound crazy and you'll be sitting in the meeting thinking, how can I make that? Or you'll push back and say, we can't do that because, and he will say, no, you're going to make it happen. Um, And it's, it's pretty rare that you do that crazy thing, uh, that you would do that crazy thing, and it would not turn out to be unexpectedly really successful. And I think, you know, winter, first example, certainly a lot of the ideas at Dreamforce, you know, I will say a moment that sticks out to me um, when I came back in uh, 2009 I think it was the first or second Dreamforce that I was back. He started his keynote and you know, Mark's keynote is always a big moment, sort of announcing the vision for the company. Um, the next year forward, people line up hours before to get in there, see the products, see the stories, see all that stuff. And I remember he spent the first 15 minutes of that keynote talking about uh, the children's hospital, the UCSF uh, Women and Children's Hospital that you know Salesforce and, and he had donated a, a lot towards um, and, and all the good work they were doing and how important it was. And I was like, we're going to lose people like they came here to learn about CRM and cloud computing and you know the future of the industry and you're talking about this nonprofit that you know we're very passionate about but And you know, what's funny is that sort of set the tone for the direction that the conference went, which was we always had volunteering and giving back built in, but it became a part of our main stage and the stories that we told. It also became less a conference about Salesforce and just those things. Absolutely, people came for that um, innovation, for that success and and meeting other customers. But they also came to hear from these outside speakers who weren't going to talk about serum at all and get that inspiration or get that connection to causes in the world. Uh, and that was really, I think, his insight that people were ready to hear more, and it sort of shifted Dreamforce from a user conference to an industry show. And and he absolutely was was out in front and pushing us to do that.
0: Well, you've done more to shape event tech marketing than just about anyone. As you think about your experience at Salesforce and now at Slack, can you distill what Dreamforce was into a formula for success or or, or key tenants that you always come back to?
1: Wow. Um, I think a few things come to mind. The first is Dreamforce was always, you know, Salesforce is the V2 mom culture. So Dreamforce, we always anchored back to, you know, certainly our vision, but also the values. And it was, you know, innovation, impact giving back and fun. And I do think, you know, that is a way that Dreamforce sort of pushed the envelope and a reason people felt such passion and loyalty to it. You know, we a lot of user conferences where you could go and get certified and, you know, get the next release and get the notes and get the training, but not a lot of ones that prioritized, you know, the the whole human, the whole person. So I think even sometimes when you're an enterprise marketer, you think so much about like the CIO sitting in a seat making an IT buying decision, which, you know, you absolutely need to do. But you also need to think that that person is a human being who connects to causes, who has passions outside. And so you can show up as a more human brand and connect with, um the human beings that are buying your software. They're whole humans. They aren't just, you know, business software decision makers. And I think the other thing that really um, and this is this is maybe more tactical, but it certainly speaks a lot to the moment that we're in now is, you know, Dreamforce started selling out. And not only did it start selling out, there were people who never were going to come anyway. It was too expensive. It was too far, couldn't take times out of their life. So thinking about how you take this live event that you invest so much in and figure out ways to amplify it beyond the well, Dreamforce was more than just four walls, but the physical space that you have. And and that, you know, I think what we've learned and what we learned doing Dreamforce and what every marketer would tell you now, it's not just taking what you did in person and completely putting it all on Zoom or, you know, whatever uh, on 24. You have to think of different ways to engage with an audience and create virtual experiences that are capturing the essence of what you're delivering in an in-person experience, but tailoring it to that virtual world, giving interactivity, making it more digestible, more snackable. Um, and bringing that whole event, not just here, we're going to tell you the five things that you learned in the keynote, but really trying to connect with people um, virtually is is a big thing.
0: Well, we're now living in a COVID world. My question related to events, are the mega in-person events dead? And if not, how are they going to evolve?
1: I think they're, they're in a deep sleeping beauty style sleep for a Hibernation. while. Hibernation.
0: Hibernation. Hibernation.
1: Yeah. I think it'll be a while. I mean, I think it'll be a while. And, you know, will, will tens of thousands of people ever come to a conference again or in the next decade? I don't know. Um, I think though when things are safe again people are craving that human connection and there are parts of it you're just never as wonderful as as zooms and and calls and things like that are you're never going to be able to replicate that human connection but first of all I think the first thing people will do when it starts to feel safer they're not going to want to travel to a business conference they're want to go to see their friends and family that they've been separated for so long I think the way that things will come back online will be small and local and you know rather than you know, 10,000 people flying to Las Vegas for a big show. You'll see people who are willing to go gather with 50, 100 people in their town in a way that feels safe. And, and, and companies will come out and travel and engage with people that way and get more of that one-to-one connection. But even that, I think people shouldn't, wouldn't risk their safety. So that's gonna be at a time where we have either this under control, testing, vaccine, something to a place where people feel safe again. So I think it's honest as marketers to figure out both what we do in the meantime and how and when it start to say it's safe to start to roll stuff like that out again.
0: You had a really big job at Salesforce. Then you moved to Slack and assumed the top seat in marketing as the CMO. Was that scary? Of course,
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd be amazed if anyone maybe they wouldn't admit it would say that it wouldn't be. You know, first of all, I left a company that I'd worked on worked at. You know, for the majority of my career. So just you know, jumping out of that very comfortable, wonderful, loving nest um, and going someplace completely new and in the top spot, you know, it it was absolutely daunting. Um, But it just it felt like too exciting and amazing an opportunity to pass up. And, you know, I was not looking to leap out of my my happy, comfortable nest, but I couldn't say no to this opportunity.
0: How did you confront the anxiety or the fear?
1: Every day you kind of, the the anxiety and fear can be there, but I think every day you also just, you get up and you do your job. Like you, you can't sit in paralysis. You kind of keep moving. I also have a great support network. Um, I have a husband who does not allow me to say that I can't do things. He's like, we can have this conversation, but the part where you say you can't do this thing is not part of the conversation. Let's talk about what you want to actually do. Um, so that's very lucky and great friends and family who are similar. And I also like, I have a great support network that I very actively reached out to. You know, I say the, the one of the best things I did for myself and my development uh, during the first two months, three months I was at Slack, every single week I either had a coffee or, uh, you know, an after work. Glass of wine, or even just a long phone call with another CMO that I knew. And, you know, I'm lucky having worked at Salesforce so long, I actually know a lot of CMOs. A lot of people come out of that marketing team and become CMOs. And what was great is every single conversation was actually pretty similar of, you know, I came in and I need to figure this, this, this out. And I'm talking to people who are a year two years ahead of me on their journey. And they're all like, yeah, I'm exactly, I was exactly where you are, here's where I am now, here's what I did. So it was very reassuring to know that I wasn't alone in that and talk to them about what I was thinking in my approach and getting a lot of validation that it was similar to what they had gone through and I was on the right track.
0: Salesforce and Slack are very different companies. That actually starts at the top with the CEO. We talked a little bit about Mark. He is the consummate marketer, salesperson. Stuart, very different passionate about product. That's the background that he comes from. How did you have to adapt your style based on the orientation of the CEOs of those two companies?
1: Um, Great question. Um, They are very different, Um, but I will say there is a commonality. I mean, Mark, I always think of as very very marketing and, to be fair, very sales-focused. Stuart, definitely very product-focused. He came up in product, passionate about product and user experience. But if you think about it, those are both sort of different ways of tackling, like, taking care of your customer. And Stuart's just thinking about it from a, what is their experience with the product from the second they encounter it? And Mark is thinking about it more, just, you know, how do you get the customer in, loving you, being with you? So they're both approaching customer love from different places. So I think having that commonality and knowing where marketing plays there is important. I think it's also important for every CMO to understand the areas of marketing that their CEO is most passionate about. And you both have to figure out, you know, how to how to make sure that the, the CEO feels involved in those parts of marketing. Stuart's super passionate about brands, super passionate about design. So super passionate about the message. So we spend a lot of time together on that. And then you also have to figure out how to make sure your CEO knows about the other things that are really important, even if they aren't necessarily the areas of, of passion or interest. You know, Mark always wanted to talk about pipeline. Stuart always wants to talk about, you know, again, design, messaging, branding, all these things that are hugely important. They're both important. So how do you make sure that the CEO also sees the other areas that are important and understands why you're investing in them, why they're important and how they're doing? But they're both great. And I think I've I've learned so much from being with a CEO who is oriented differently. I'm, I'm seeing such a different style and a different approach and I'm learning so much from him every day.
0: The first 100 days in a new role are critical. That's where you learn. That's where you lay the foundation for what you'll be doing over the next several years. What was your playbook when you came to Slack regarding how you were going to build your marketing organization?
1: Well, the first thing I wanted to do was listen um, and, and really understand. You know, I'd spent a lot of the interview process understanding the lay of the land and they'd been without a leader for a little while and marketing had been literally broken into pieces and, and kind of put in different departments while they waited to to make this decision. So, you know, bringing everybody together was step one, but step two was figuring out the optimal way to organize. And so what I needed to do was understand what was everybody doing and how was it organized today beyond just the org charts and and what people were saying. So I did, um, I think we counted 25 immersions, which was different groups, mostly within marketing, but also some key partners outside marketing coming in for 30 minutes to an hour and with a a templated approach. So we made sure we covered everything like here's the team, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're measured on. Here's, you know, examples of our work and here's what we think. Um, that was the other thing. I really wanted to hear what other people thought. You know, Our point of view is the team should grow by 5X. Our point of view is we need to be co- more connected to this team. Um, and listening to them was was very helpful and, and definitely got me up to speed quite a bit. I had like three notebooks worth of notes and also great to be able to ask questions. Um, one-on-ones with as many people as I could inside my department, outside my department. And then, like I mentioned, I was doing these weeklies with a sort of – group of CMOs um, that kind of became my little advisory network. And I would sit with them, and, I mean, literally be sitting in a wine bar and drawing an org chart. And I'm saying, I kind of think these things should go together. What did you do? How did you do it? And what's the profile of the leader of it? So um, came up within a few months with how I was going to organize and where the gaps were that I needed to hire. And there were some new leaders that I needed to bring in just kind of up-leveling the organization they had been a little under-invested in for a while. Um, and feel pretty good about where we ended up. And um, I guess I got that. I certainly didn't get the leaders hired, but got that organization figured out within the first hundred days.
0: So you nailed the organization, hire great talent to fill the spots. Tell me a little bit about the qualities or the values that you're trying to instill in your team and how you go about doing that.
1: A lot of what I was brought in to do was kind of to shift the mindset of marketing. Um, Marketing had been very much sort of like a junior service organization and sort of all the parts of the business would come to marketing and the marketer would kind of do the thing that they were asked to do. So one of the key things that I'm trying to instill is, first of all, that like, We have a mission. We have a purpose. And that mission and purpose is not about, you know, executing everybody's ideas everywhere in the company. We are about driving demand for Slack. We are about, you know, taking this company to the next level. So I think part of it was just sort of building that confidence and and inspiration of we have a real mission and a purpose here. And then the second piece of that is like that therefore means that we need to have a strategy that we're aligned to and a prioritized set of activities that we're going to do around that. And so prioritization, saying no to things, focusing and doing sort of fewer things, higher impact um, has been sort of the other key focus and the other side of that. Like, that's how we're going to really make a difference. Um, and, you know, it's it's been a shift. And I, I joke, like, we still aren't an organization that knows how to say no very well. So I think um, learning how to do that in a way that we're still great partners um, we're still customer centric. I think that's a, another thing that I've really tried to talk about is customer centricity. There was, uh, you know, Slack for a while didn't have sales. Sales grew up, not everybody uh, as, a, as an organization became very big, big part of the business, but not everybody sort of was aligned with sales. And so seeing marketing as a key partner to sales and not just a partner to sales, a partner to sales in a very customer centric way. I think um, customer centricity is another thing that I've really tried to, try to go in. Like, how are we thinking about the customer? How are we bringing the customer's voice in? Um, so bringing that in as well, I think those are sort of the biggest shifts, uh, that I've tried to do. And then I think the last is marketing was maybe a little run down when I came in, you know, they'd been without a leader, they've been kind of waiting for this to happen. So I think trying to boost confidence and make people feel like excited, like this is the best work of our lives. We're at Slack. This is an incredible time. So hopefully giving them that, that sense of, of confidence and optimism about what we're going to achieve together.
0: Right now, everybody, every CMO on the planet is trying to rebuild their marketing, Strategy, given the the challenges that we face, what does marketing look like now at Slack in terms of where you're leaning in and maybe where you're pulling back a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, we're doing fewer live events. I don't know if that's it's strange. (laughs) I'm sure nobody else has said that. Um, You know, for us, it's been such an interesting shift because um, you know we're still building a new category, and the people who use Slack love Slack, and the people who don't use Slack kind of still don't understand what it is. So our big focus has been be clearer, be very concise, be very like, this is what Slack is. That's been a lot of our focus for the first, you know, whatever, nine months pre-COVID that I'm here. And it's obviously still, we need to break through and need to get that comprehension and consideration. But I think what this uh, dynamic and this time is really open for us is, you know, we actually have a bigger story to tell right now because a lot of our customers are seeing huge success and and we were experiencing it ourselves when you are suddenly forced to work remotely in a completely different way, Slack can really fill a lot of gaps that maybe you weren't anticipating and can play an even bigger role than it did before. So we're leaning more into thought leadership and kind of painting that vision, painting that story than maybe we would have um, if this hadn't happened, because I think there's such a a thirst and appetite for that. And people are looking for this type of solution right now. So we absolutely still have that that comprehension and and winning the the understanding in hearts and minds. But I think it's allowed us to talk uh, at a higher altitude about why Slack is important, why it's important right now.
0: Well, the conversation has come full circle. We started off talking about storytelling and we ended up talking about storytelling. Julie, it's been a wonderful few minutes that we've spent together. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your background and also the insights that you've gleaned over your years as a marketer.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me.